Hi everyone, I'm Michael Calori. I'm an editor here at Wired, and you are listening to The Gadget Lab, the podcast where we talk about the latest gadgets, apps, and services that you need to know about and how they impact our lives. I am joined, as always, by my co-hosts, Wired senior writer Lauren Good. Hello. And senior associate editor Ariel Pardes. Hello, I'm back. I'm back. Did you guys miss me? Yes, we did. We did, actually. We were concerned you weren't going to return. I thought about not returning. I um, I was in Copenhagen for a week. It's very nice there. It was <laughs> it was nice. I thought about accidentally losing my passport or perhaps throwing it into a river. Um, but I'm back. I missed you guys too much. And on today's show, we will be discussing Apple, or as Oprah Winfrey says, Apple. <laughs> how do how do they say Apple in Copenhagen? That's a great question. <laughs> Did you know there was going to be a pop Danish Danish pop quiz on today's hey Siri intro? How do you say Apple in Danish? I can't translate into Danish yet. Oh, uh, woof. All right. Well, uh, despite Siri's shortcomings, there are a lot of new things out of Apple this week. Uh, the company held its big event at its headquarters in Cupertino on Tuesday. Lauren, you were there to soak it all in, so if it's okay with you, we will ply you for information, opinions, and juicy stories. Oh, we're going to have plenty of those. I was there, but first, let's get to the news, and then we're going to talk about all things Apple. Mike, do you want to go first? I will, yes. Uh, I have some news about uh, the gig economy. California is close to instating a new law that would seek to classify gig economy workers as employees and not contractors. This bill, which is known as California Assembly Bill 5 or AB5, has passed both the state assembly and the Senate. And as of the time we're recording this show, uh, Governor Gavin Newsom is getting ready to sign it into law. Our own Ariane Marshall has been reporting on this story uh, for the last few weeks, and she has a story this week on Wired. She says in her story that AB5 reaffirms a 2018 California Supreme Court decision that established a three-part test to separate independent contractors from employees. It's a mouthful. Uh, Since employees are eligible for protections like minimum wage, health care, and workers' compensation, this new law would greatly increase the labor costs of all of the companies whose workers pass that three-part test. Now, that three-part test is... A worker is only an independent contractor if she is not under the control or direction of the company while she's working. Two, if her work is outside the usual course of the company's business. And three, if she is customarily engaged in the same kind of work that she does for the company. So to use Uber as an example, if the company is forced to classify its California drivers as actual employees, then it would see a 20% increase in its operating cost in the state, which is a huge ding on a company that lost $5 billion last quarter alone. Uber and Lyft, of course, are fighting back. The two companies have collected $60 million to support an effort to get a new, more favorable for them, worker classification measure on California's 2020 ballot. So the argument that Uber keeps coming back to here is that it's not a transportation company with contractors. It's actually a technology company, which means that its drivers are customers of its technology. Yes, that's that's what they're saying. So how, how will that hold up in court? Uh, well, there's already precedent that it won't. A federal judge already said uh, in in one of these hearings that um, 
Uber is a technology company. Uh, their argument is that they they make an app. That's all they do. They just make an app that hooks up clients with customers. They're a platform. Um, the the judge scolded them and said, you are as much a technology company as Yellow Cab is a technology company because Yellow Cab just uses CBs and a dispatcher to connect clients with customers. So you can't claim that you're not really a transportation company. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll have to see how that plays out. Uh, I think it's safe to say that very few people are rooting for Uber here. So yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> we'll have to see uh, how the judge feels. Yeah, it's also going to be a big test of their lobbying efforts over the next year because we're going to be voting on this in November of 2020 here in California. Mm. Well, speaking of platforms, the era of likes and retweets and favorites on social media is over. It's sort official. Of. <laughs> not, not really, not really. Uh, but a growing number of platforms are experimenting with what I like to call demetrication or removing the metrics from social media posts. So Twitter has been running some tests since about March on uh, Little T Twitter, its prototyping app, to see how tweets would look if they didn't have likes. Um, Instagram has also begun testing this in six countries, though not yet in the United States. And now Facebook is rumored to have its own demetrication tests coming down the pike. There was some sort of clever reverse engineering of the Facebook app, which showed that uh, something like this is, is underway. Um, this turns out to be really controversial, right? So there are a lot of people like myself who believe that demetrication is one of the only ways we can dig ourselves out of the hellhole that is social media. I personally demetricate all of my platforms thanks to some handy UX hacks, and I think it's a much, much better way to be online. But the platforms are really wary of how this might affect their bottom line. Um, not to mention lots of people now make their living on platforms like these. So when YouTube made a change to the way it displays its subscriber counts, uh, now it rounds them up rather than displaying the precise figure of how many people subscribe to a particular account. Lots of YouTubers with big followings got angry because that affects their business model, right? It affects how they get paid at the end of the day. It also affects cancel culture and being able to see who's losing <laughs> subscribers rapidly. Um, so you can expect that Instagram will deal with very similar backlash from its influencer community if it removes things like follower counts or likes. Um, and Facebook, of course, which is the biggest of all of these platforms, uh, will no doubt deal with some controversy as well. Ariel, do you get the sense that these companies are thinking about maybe creating some type of bifurcated system where professionals who use the platforms have a different experience than regular people who are posting photos of their lunch? Because I would think like it feels a little outdated to think about these social media platforms as just these like social tools that we post to, you know, our mundane lives and and like sometimes make us feel bad. When in reality there are these hugely influential platforms with a collective billions of people on them and they're they're in some ways usurping traditional media models and are how we get our media mm -hmm. so how i mean how would they i mean to the point of the influencers not liking this like how are they actually going to handle that i don't think anyone has good answers at this point right i do think it's a smart suggestion though to create some kind of bifurcated model or or even just a toggle where you could toggle off the numbers and then toggle them back on um I mean, we've seen similar things with, um, for example, Twitter finally allowing people to view the feed chronologically. Like, that's an option, right? You can still view it algorithmically if you want, but they're saying a lot of people have a better experience when they view the feed in this particular way. Now we're giving you the tools to do that. 
you can still use all of our, you know, sort of algorithmic genius if you want, but, you know, have the experience that's meaningful to you. And I think you could do a similar thing with demetrication where you could say, like, listen, a lot of people want this. A lot of people don't, but there's no reason why we couldn't make it possible for both types of people. Well, I fully admire your commitment to demetrifying your social media <laughs> accounts. I think that's how you say it. All right. You should still follow me on Twitter, though. I do. And I like everything wholeheartedly. <laughs> I fave. Uh, okay. So you'd think in this day and age, we'd all be getting wiser to email scams. But these types of scams, you know, the kind where someone writes you a compelling email and they ask you for personal information and tell you to transfer your funds... Those have ballooned in recent years, and they're costing people tens of billions of dollars. Well, the Justice Department is doing something about it. Our colleague Lily Newman from Wired wrote on Tuesday of this week that the department announced the arrest of 281 suspects in connection with email scams and wire transfer fraud. This operation, which in the U.S. involved not only the DOJ, but also Homeland Security, the Treasury, and the State Department, was called Operation Rewired, not to be confused with Wired. It resulted in 167 arrests in Nigeria, 74 in the U.S., and others in Turkey, Ghana, and throughout other parts of Europe and Asia. Most of the scams originate in Nigeria, but the problems really have spread all around the world. So you might be wondering how this happens, especially when most people are pretty savvy these days. Um, and the answer is that scammers have become much more sophisticated. Uh, Lily writes about one example in which employment scammers will trick people by quote-unquote hiring them, and then as part of the enrollment process, they ask them to submit sensitive information. Or they overpay these people, and then they ask for a portion of the money back, when in reality they haven't been overpaid or paid at all. This also extends into fake romantic relationships um, as well. I don't know if you guys recall, but the New York Times had a great story several weeks ago about, about this, these kinds of scams happening on Facebook. So yeah, we're not we're not past email scams in 2019. So these people that they arrested, I assume these are like spearheads. These are people who are like maybe running a scam ring or something like that, or are these just individual actors? That's a really good question, and I'm not entirely sure, uh -huh. but it's. It's a good question that you raise because you would think that these skills are pretty transferable. So if you've got a whole <laughs> cluster of folks who are working on these kinds of operations and then maybe you, you know, you arrest the head of one group, maybe it does um, something to dissuade others. But, um, you know, there's still a lot of bad actors to use a term that's, you know, used frequently in the fraud world. There are a lot of bad actors out there and it becomes kind of a game of, of whack-a-mole, especially when these bad actors are single-handedly focused, you know, all day long on scamming people. Mm -hmm. Whereas most people on the receiving end of the scam are just kind of going about their daily lives and then get a strange phone call or email or whatever it is. And maybe you don't have the bandwidth to really, you know, investigate it or think deeply about what kind of sensitive information they might be, they might be sending over, you know, over the wires. So, um, so yeah, it's hard to say at this point whether or not arresting a ringleader or just a participant in these scams will actually do anything to stymie the larger problem. Wouldn't it be great if just like the DOJ makes this move and then spam just stops? <laughs> right, right. No more Nigerian princes <laughs> no telling more. me that I need to give my money over. No more anything. Uh, okay, well, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, Lauren, we'll put you in the hot seat and we'll talk about Apple. Sounds great. On Tuesday of this week, Apple held an event at its corporate campus in Cupertino, California to debut its new mobile hardware, namely three new iPhone models, a new iPad, and a new Apple Watch. Good morning and welcome to the Steve Jobs Theater. Lauren, 
You were down there on Tuesday at the building that looks like a giant space donut. <laughs> I'd like to start by asking you to set the scene for us. What does it feel like to attend one of these events, to like walk in and sit there and have it all happen right in front of you? It feels different. But in order to say it feels different, you have to sort of have a sense of how it used to feel. Mm. This is not the first event that's been held at the Steve Jobs Theater, which is relatively new. And so being at that theater is kind of a unique experience because it is like a giant space donut, as you said. It's this really, some people call it the spaceship. It's this huge circular building. It's up a hill. I mean, the, the grounds are gorgeous. The building itself is all glass and marble. And um, you go down the stair, these marble stairs into the Steve Jobs Theater where the leather seats are like nicer than any seat you would see in a luxury vehicle. It's, it's like a really kind of crazy, nice experience. But when I say it's different, I mean the tenor, I think, the events are different than they have been in the past several years. And we're going to talk about this a little bit more, so we'll put a pin in this. But I just think that, um, yeah, the overall excitement levels feel a little bit muted from what they maybe used to be around these new hardware announcements. Hmm, that's interesting. I think we should unpack that. But but just to sort of explain, this is the event where every year Apple unveils the iPhone. And indeed, the star of the show this year is the iPhone. Mm-hmm. Surprise, surprise. In fact, there were three new iPhones. The iPhone 11, the iPhone 11 Pro, and the iPhone 11 Pro Max. Um, where where should we even begin? Well, I, as I like to joke, um, I think by the time you say the words 11, iPhone 11 Pro Max, a new one is already out. Uh, because <laughs> it's a really lengthy term. But I guess we should probably start with the iPhone 11 because I find that to be the most interesting. So, it is the iPhone 11, and in fact, when it was first revealed, we were all live blogging thinking, okay, so is is, is, it, is this the phone? Is this mm. it? But then they flashed the price point, which is $699, and announced that the iPhone XR, which is last year's model, is now selling for $599, and you realize, okay, there has to be more up Apple's sleeve because they've been pushing the cost and the average selling prices of these phones up and up and up over the past you know few years. So, um, so the iPhone 11, I think, is the phone that most people are going to be interested in because it is at a really friendly price point for such a high-end phone. This is iPhone 11, the next generation of iPhone, and it is jam-packed with great new capabilities. It has one more camera lens than the iPhone XR had last year, so now when it does portrait effect photos, it can do them a little bit better because it has the added depth. It's a wide-angle lens and an ultra-wide-angle lens, 12 megapixel for those who are interested in the nerdy details. I'm pushing it's my glasses at my nose. <laughs> right, right. <I'm> listening intently. <laughs> exactly. It's got a, ra- a rather large battery. The form factor is a little bit larger than the iPhone X, XS, and whatever is next now, the Pro. So um, so you get more battery life, which I think is appealing to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. One of the sacrifices you make is that it has an LCD screen and not an OLED display, but a lot of people don't care about that. And it comes in cool new colors. So I think this is going to be the one that interests a lot of people who are like, you know what? I'm not a quote-unquote pro. I don't need to spend $1,100 on a phone. Then you get into the pro category, and that's where Apple gets into like the classic differentiation. So, yeah, what is up with pro in the name? Like, I'm, uh, I, I can only imagine uh, how a pro iPhone user thinks of themselves <laughs> well, as they see, walk through the world. You see, Michael, there, there are those of us who are amateurs, and uh, <laughs> then there are those of us who do this for a living. <laughs> Yeah, Brian Barrett joked in our live blog that the iPhone 11 is then the iPhone amateur. 
And if the other ones are pro, then, you know, what's this one? Like, oh, iPhone, I would have gone pro if I didn't have any surgery. I don't know. So, well, I mean, the, like, they do have a point, though, in marketing to professionals, given that so many professionals rely on mobile phones to do their jobs. Like, if you even think about this entire category of people who's making a living on YouTube or Instagram, um, or even those of us who aren't making a living on it, but consider that a big part of our identities, right? Like, taking really good quality photos is more important now than it has ever been before. And so marketing to people who maybe do use their iPhone to like take the, the Instagram-worthy shot that then makes them a bunch of money from their influencer business actually kind of makes some kind of weird twisted sense. Yeah. Yeah, I think there are a few levels to that. And the first is when you actually consider the word professional, you are correct. It is somebody who makes a living off of doing what they're doing. So by saying this is for pros, it begs the question, well, what's a pro? Is that an aspirational term? Is that something that actually applies? And I think you're right in that they're talking to people like um, the Marcus Brownleys of the world, mm-hmm. who's this fantastic you know, YouTube reviewer and has built his business off of this um, and also appears to be a great Frisbee player, but that's besides the point. <laughs> and, and like, that's someone who they're like, they're probably thinking like, all right, someone like this makes his business off of this. So how do we cater to that person? And the person who aspires to be that person. Well, that's exactly it. They have to do that delicate marketing dance. And it's so Apple to do this. We're not to come out and explicitly say it's for that person, but to just kind of leave pro out there as this nebulous idea that like, Ariel, you could be a pro. I mean, you could be. You have $1,100 to burn. You want the fancy best camera. You want to up your game on Instagram. Like, you could be the pro. Um, and then they and then they bring it to, like, the next level, which is, and now director so-and-so is going to shoot his movie. And I, I absolutely love that. They crack me up because they'll show, a, you know, a director being rolled around on a dolly with, you know, fa- um, uh, professional lighting and, like, C-stands. And, like, the lighting alone probably costs $70,000 and all this stuff. And then they're, like, and they zoom in and they're, like, iPhone. And, you know, <laughs> the person's like peering into this tiny little iPhone viewfinder and yeah. like you imagine the DP like tapping the screen to focus um, <laughs> and then like looking at the dailies and being like what is this crap so uh, so yeah like you know they, they create these like multiple levels of what it really means and so they want to make it for like a certain segment of people but also for everybody so what is it in particular that you get from the top of the line phone the pro max you get right. a better camera. That's the big difference between the regular Pro and the Max Pro. I mean, besides obviously the bigger screen, the bigger size, the bigger battery, all that. Better battery life. Uh-huh. I think they're claiming up to five hours more battery life than you would have gotten on the larger model last year, mm-hmm. and the camera. So okay. you're getting you're getting. Um, well, actually, I don't think there's much of a difference between the 11 Pro and 11 Pro Max camera, mm-hmm. but both of those cameras are differentiated from the 11 mm-hmm. by extra an extra camera lens. Let's talk a little bit about the Apple Watch. Uh, is there anything interesting there to, to talk about? Well, on some level, what Apple has done with Apple Watch Series 5 is make it work like every other watch in the universe, <laughs> which is that it shows you the time all the time now. So they have created this uh, this display type that I'm going to botch the name right now, but it's something like a uh, low temperature poly silicon oxide, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, Again, go pushing look my up. glasses up yeah, the bridge exactly. of my nose. Yeah, uh, exactly. You can go look this up. But basically, they, uh, they created an always-on display uh, low energy, always on display that has a variable refresh rate. So when it's in use, it might go up to 60 hertz. When you're not using it, it might go down to one hertz. And that's what saves the battery life. Um, and they have, they say it's the first in the industry like this. And so now the Apple Watch still has an OLED display, but it's always on. Hmm. And it's pretty nifty because other 
companies have done this before with wearables. Garmin comes to mind. Garmin is known for having this transflective LCD display where it's always on, so you can always see the time. By the way, Garmin battery life is great. Um, but Apple thinks like they've managed to accomplish something because they've now done this with an OLED and they're still claiming the same battery life of like 18 hours. But that's really like, and then there's some new casings, but that's really like the, the only new thing. So besides the phones and the watch, Apple also showed off a new iPad. It gave some details around two of its new services, Apple TV Plus, its streaming service, and Apple Arcade, its gaming service. But Lauren, you mentioned that the sort of excitement around the sum total of these products was was low. Yeah, it did feel like there was a little bit less excitement this year. And that may be because iPhone sales are slowing and it's just harder to get excited about each new one. It may be that some of the folks in the room, myself included, have been to lots of these events before and they start to feel a little bit the same after a while. But I think Charlie Warsell from the New York Times did a good job summing this up in his column this week about the overall tenor and um maybe tone deafness of these events. He called it a love letter to consumerism and sort of painted a picture of how all of these, um, these you know, whiz bang, wow, look at these shiny new thing tech events are happening against the backdrop of some pretty serious issues going on in broader society. I mean, the world is a different place than it was eight years ago. The world is a different place from the time when Steve Jobs first announced the iPhone in 2007. Um, the world is just, it's completely changed in such a relatively short period of time. And so I now I think when people are at events like these, they're not just thinking about, should I get the new iPhone? I mean, they shouldn't necessarily just be thinking about that. They should be thinking about issues of sustainability, um, the treatment of employees and contractors of these companies around the world, um, things that are going on macroeconomic issues and trends, tariffs, the threat of a recession, um, all of these things that are sort of, I mean, inequality and equity, like some people can afford iPhones and some people like can't afford to pay rent in San Francisco. You know, like like there's all these things that are sort of feeding our brains right now and a lot of uncertainty and instability in the world. And so I think like it does feel a little bit like you're in this warp or something when you're in this dark room and these executives are like trotting out on stage and like showing like, look at these amazing photos of these models we took in Malibu. Like life is grand. Yeah. And sometimes it just doesn't feel that way. It's... It's an infomercial. Mm -hmm. It's an hour and 45 minute long infomercial. And we watch it and we report on it because it's it sets the tone for the entire consumer electronics or sorry, the entire mobile consumer electronics industry for the next year. Mm -hmm. But I mean, it's like walking into Disney on ice because it's big and it's expensive and it's full of pageantry and lot of ooh and ah moments but there you're right there's like no mention whatsoever of anything that's happening outside that room very rarely does the real world sort of creep into one of those events and when it does it's usually addressed at the very beginning and then they've addressed it and then they move on and like okay now show us the merchandise mm -hmm. and um it's becoming even more obvious to us every year as the world burns down everywhere else outside the steve jobs theater and Silicon Valley. Right, right. And maybe, you know, maybe Apple executives know something we don't. Maybe they just know there's a portion of the population that is not going to care about these broader issues. Its stock was doing just fine the following day. And if there's anything that you could say about Apple, it's that it manages to deliver these products with an amazingly precise consistency that few other tech companies have managed to achieve. And so I think, you know, investors see that and they're like, great, they're still delivering hardware. That's what we're excited about. We know they're going to sell and they know they're going to sell. 
So they're going to hear us talk about this stuff and like maybe it's going to go in one ear and out the other. But I agree with you and I agree with Charlie and some others who have noted that um, these events and actually Shira Ovaday has also written this, you know, a couple of years ago. She said like BuzzFeed has written about this. Anyway, it's time to really reconsider the tenor of these events. Well, Lauren, thank you so much for debriefing us on everything that happened at Apple this week. Happy to. And let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll go through our recommendations. All right. Now let's get to our recommendations. Ariel, why don't you go first? I'd love to. Um, this week, I'd like to recommend the book Three Women by Lisa Tadeo. This is a new book. It's like all over Twitter. Everyone I know is reading it. Um, I saw it on the desk of our colleague, John Gravois, and I said, ooh, can I borrow that before I go on this super long plane ride to Denmark? And I started reading it when I got on the plane and finished it before I landed. Like, it was that gripping. Wow. It's um, it's a nonfiction book that follows the romantic lives of three different women, and Lisa Tadeo describes it as like a study of desire among women in America. It's very inter- it's very unlike anything I've ever read, but you basically follow these three characters and their sort of twisted relationships and by the end you feel maybe a little appalled by some of their behavior but also maybe like you relate to some of it. Um I would recommend certainly that all women read it. Um whether or not you end up liking it or relating to it, I think it's still an important piece to read. Um and I think men could probably learn a lot from it as well. And it's also just juicy. Like, you get this extremely voyeuristic (laughs) sense of, like, peering into somebody else's bedroom life. Um, I was sitting next to this Danish teenager on the plane, and I was like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. I hope she can't read English. Oh, my God. I hope she doesn't know what these words mean. Because, like, some of it's kind of graphic. Sweet. (laughs) Adding it to Goodreads right now. Yeah. What about you, Lauren? My recommendation this week is very local. So if you don't live in the San Francisco Bay Area, I apologize. However, if you live in the Bay Area and you happen to be a fan of 90s rock music. And who isn't? And who isn't among us? (laughs) I recommend getting your butt over to the Hate Arts Center because there is a fantastic exhibit called Live in Two Dimensions, and it is decades worth of Pearl Jam concert posters. (laughs) (laughs) I was really thinking of what I could recommend this week, and to be honest, I just haven't been much fun. I've been working a lot, but the one thing I did, the one fun thing I did earlier this week was go to this exhibit, and it's great. There's just uh, really great art by artists such as Brad Clausen, and um, the, I think it's called the Ames Group. I may be getting their actual company name wrong, but there are a lot of um, artists who did much of the poster design for Pearl Jam throughout the years. And um, a lot of it, a lot of the artwork is has um, distinct political or anti-corporate uh, vibes to them. Mm. And um, I've been to some of the shows, so it was like cool seeing the shows from, or the posters from the shows that I've been to. And um, yeah, like I said, very obscure, very local. I feel like Mike making this recommendation, actually. <laughs> you have become Mike. Oh my gosh, yes. No, the band would have to be way more obscure. Like it would have to be like Swedish prog rock or something like that. It's Swedish psych pop, okay. not Swedish prog rock. <laughs> Whatever it is. How did, how did this reputation <laughs> fall on to me? I don't know. Go see the Pearl Jam poster exhibit if you're in town. Awesome. Yeah. I'm going to read the book and then I'm going to go see the art show. Okay. 
Um, I would like to recommend a podcast this week, and it's a podcast that I've recommended before. It's called Lost Notes, uh, and it's a show, usually about half an hour, 40 minutes worth of show, from KCRW, the big NPR station in Los Angeles. Um, I've recommended it before because there was the first season, and now there's the second season. And the second season, I feel like, is the show is really hitting its stride. There's a new host. Her name is Jess Hopper. She's an author and music writer. She has some really great stories to tell you about um, elements of the music industry and the music world that you probably are unaware of. It's sort of like like liner notes sort of format where they give you like history of somebody and they sort of chart their story and then they tell you a little bit about their lives and what happened in their careers. Uh, and often it's told through the voices of the musicians themselves. Uh, this season in particular, there's a whole episode about John Fahey, uh, the avant-garde guitar player that's told through the eyes and by the stories of the people who lived with him throughout his life, which is really amazing. There is um, a story about the band Fanny, which was like a stadium rock band in the 70s made up entirely of women that history has largely forgotten. Like, nobody's heard of Fanny. But you hear their story, and it's really incredible. In 1999, a fan wrote a letter to Rolling Stone magazine. He was advocating for one of his favorite bands. He wrote... One of the most important female bands in American rock has been buried without a trace. And that is Fanny. Uh, There's also a great half an hour interview with Suzanne Ciani, the um, electronic music pioneer from the 60s and 70s. Uh, who got rich in advertising and her story about how she broke into the advertising industry, like literally broke into the industry. I won't give anything away. You have to listen to it. Fascinating. Highly recommended. Lost Notes from KCRW. Uh, it's a great commute podcast because it's about as long as this one, about 45 minutes. Fantastic. I really want to listen to that. All right. And read the book. And then go to see the art a, show. And take a long flight to Denmark. <laughs> It's a plan. Uh, Well, thanks, everyone, for listening to the show. Uh, If you've enjoyed the episode, please leave us a review wherever you download podcasts uh, and leave reviews because uh, we love hearing your feedback. And also, it's a great way for people to find the show who might be interested in it and tell a friend. And you can also talk to us all on Twitter. Ariel, how do people find you on the Twitter? At Pardesoteric. And remember, she's demetricated now, so she won't know that you followed her. But you should follow her anyway. Lauren, how do people find you? At Lauren Good with an E. I am at Snackfight, and you can talk to all of us at Gadget Lab, which is the main hotline. And thanks again for listening. We will be back next week.